Well, good morning, church family, and uh, I really hope that your Thanksgiving weekend has been uh, full and restful. Uh, Today is the first Sunday of Advent, a word that means arrival or visitation, and for nearly 1,500 years, 1,500 years, Christians have set aside uh, four Sundays before Christmas Day in prayer Uh, scripture reading, and really soul preparation for the celebration of our Lord's arrival, His birth. And so this year during Advent, I would like for us to study uh, the Gospel of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. John chapter 1. And you'll find that on page 886 in your church Bibles. This morning, we're going to be focusing our attention on John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, the verses that were read during our Advent reading. And churches often save these verses until Christmas Eve. Uh, Churches will often uh, use Advent and read passages of Scripture from the Old Testament or the prophets or uh, Matthew and Luke. And then on Christmas Eve, uh, they'll crescendo to these beautiful and, and uh, magnificent verses, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Very popular verses uh, during uh, Christmas Eve. But as you look at these Advent verses in John 1, 1 through 18, you'll notice something that's unique in John's gospel as compared to, say, Matthew or Luke. What's unique is what's missing. In verses 1 through 18, there's no Mary, no Joseph, no angel, no trip to Bethlehem, no mention of there being no room at the inn, uh, no manger scene in John 1, 1 through 18. Uh, No shepherds, no angelic host, and no wise men. They're not there. John's gospel gives a very different version of Christmas in that while Matthew and Luke talk to us about the facts of Christmas, the events themselves, the play-by-play of Christ's birth, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, John's gospel is unique in that it focuses exclusively on the meaning of Christ's birth. John's gospel tells us the significance of it all. Now, verses 1 through 18 are what Bible teachers call the prologue. Pro, before, log, word. So, the word before the word. The introduction. Um, And this prologue is about what you need to know that will help you understand what it is you're about to read throughout the entire gospel. So imagine going to a play where before the curtain opens, someone comes out and says, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to uh, the play. Before the play begins, here's what you need to know that'll help you understand all that follows. And, And then you're told insider information. You know something that the characters 
in the play. Don't know. And some may never know. But you know it. You're taken behind the curtain. And you see what's going on here. And all of that helps you understand. You're offered a glimpse of the private life of God. Oh, how um, uh, television programming, some shows want to take us behind the curtains of the private lives of celebrities and stars and here, though, is about the life of someone more important than anyone who has ever lived. And we're often a glimpse of God's life. And, and so in these five verses that begin John's gospel, verses that help us understand the significance of Christ's birth, I want us to consider three truths from these five verses. And we'll just... Let me tell you what the truths are and let you know what they are, and then we'll just walk through each of these truths. Truth number one, Jesus existed before he was born. Jesus existed before he was born. Truth number two, Jesus is the reason everything exists. Truth number two. And then truth number three is Jesus defeated the darkness of this world. Three truths that give us a behind-the-curtain glimpse of God's own life. Truth number one, Jesus existed before he was born. You can see that in verse one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John tells us that in the beginning was the Word. That, he's talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God. He's talking about Jesus, and the Word was God. He's talking about Jesus. Now, think about that for a minute. That, that's beyond my thinking. I mean, I can be with my wife, but I'm not my wife. But here, the Word was with God and was God. How is that possible? And before we read anything else about the life of Christ in John's Gospel... We're given a glimpse behind the curtain about the nature of God. That is, in Christianity, there is a threeness to the oneness of God. That our God is one being who exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, we're all used to the idea of you know, one person, one being. The God of the Bible is triune, a trinity, a triune community. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And of course, this is quite frustrating to Sarah and mine's Muslim friends. Um, I went to school at Trinity International University in Deerfield. And one of the professors up there, a uh, professor by the name of Don Carson tells a story about a friendship uh, with a Muslim. And they talked about their faiths. And after a while, they were open and they were able to have a, a, a cordial and um, a good conversation about their differences. And so the Muslim says to Professor Carson, Don, 
You know, if you have one cup and you add one cup, how many cups do you have? And Don said, you know, two. Well, and then he said, well, if you have two cups and then you add one, then how many cups do you have? He had three, and Don smiled because he knew where his friend was going. And, of course, then the friend said, well, if you have one God and you add another God, how many gods do you have? And then if you add another God, how many? Yeah, I know where you're going, Don said. If you want to talk mathematics, let's consider another branch of mathematics. Uh, what's infinity plus infinity plus infinity? And they both laughed. You see, there's just something mysterious and inexplicable to our triune God. But John doesn't explain the Trinity with math. He helps us understand who God is by describing him relationally. And you see that actually down in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, you'll notice there's a footnote in your church Bible. And I don't know why they just didn't print the footnote in the main text. Because verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is in the Father's bosom. That's actually a better translation. He has made him known. It's a better translation because it it speaks to the intimacy of our triune God. Uh, Let me me ask it this way. And I don't know how else to ask it, just just to ask it this way. How many people in your life have a right to your bosom? I mean, without asking permission could just walk up next to you and just bury their head in your chest. You know, there's just a very, well, for me, you know, well, there's my wife, of course. My two sons, eh, I don't know, they're 28 and 24. (laughs) My granddaughter, oh, yeah, that's a no-brainer. You see what I mean? And so the, the posture of being in someone's bosom is about a deep, loving, intimate, close relationship. And what John is telling us at the very beginning of his gospel is that the Father and the Son, and then later we will learn as the gospel unfolds, the Holy Spirit. Though they had no physical body, no physical bosom, they were folded into one another. They, they possessed spiritual oneness, spiritual community, spiritual togetherness. They possess the same love, the same values, the same affection, the same goals. Think of it. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, giving, sharing, receiving, and radiating joy and glory and love and pleasure and peace and truth and kindness and goodness. A sharing community, a giving community, a community of joy and delight. And imagine all of the different ways this could be expressed. Speaking love, singing love, sharing love. Imagine, imagine a relationship in which you felt totally loved and totally accepted and totally safe and totally in community. Friends, this is what God was doing before the creation of the world. Now, does that sound boring to you? 
You know better. I mean, the healthiest of human relationships you know, are, are just but a drop compared to this ocean of divine sharing love. And the truth is, you're made for this kind of love. You're made for this kind of community. And I know this because, you see, the reason why the holidays can cause such an ache in our heart is that deep down inside, you and I want to be able to bury our head in the bosom of a heavenly Father who radiates love and joy. And the reason why Jesus came was so that you can. Later on in John's gospel, Jesus himself will pray, John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Here it is. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants you in this circle of divine triune love. And so it's not just a love that we were made for, but it's a love that changes us. Oh, have you ever known someone who is so warm and so wonderful and so gracious that you, you just spend a little time with them and just a little bit of time with them affects you, affects how you think, affects how you speak, affects how you act. Their presence in your life makes you a better person. And it wasn't that you did anything. You're just with them. And this God, John says, is love in such a profound and potent way that you simply cannot know him without yourself becoming like him, more loving. This is, this is both a promise and a challenge, isn't it? The promise is, is that God's love can change people. You know, we, we, too often we write people off. God doesn't. His love can change people. His life in your life will change your life. It's a promise and it's a challenge too, right? Are you letting his love change you? Are you letting it melt your resistance? Jesus existed before he was born in a divine and holy three-in-one community of loving arms and laughter. There it is. That's what God was doing before creation. Loving arms and laughter. And that's what you're made for. And his love led to the second truth then, see. He who existed before creation in a community of divine love, triune love, why Jesus is the reason that everything exists. Truth number two. John's gospel begins with three words in our English, in the beginning. Now, what does that sound like? Genesis, right? Genesis 1.1. So John is going to tell us about origins. That's intentional. See, when you look at Genesis 1, uh, you can't help but see a pattern, right? Creation day one, and God said. Creation day two, and God said. 
Creation day three, and God said. So Genesis 1 declares that the world we see was spoken into existence. Words created our world. And John 1 says, the word created our world. John wants us to know that what we're about to read in his gospel is not merely about a man who grew up in a country the size of New Jersey. John's trying to tell us that the story of God's creation in Genesis 1 has crested with the coming of one who will recreate the world as God has intended it to be. Genesis 1 reaches its peak with Adam and Eve. John 1 reaches its peak with the advent, the arrival of the Word made flesh. In our recent family series, we learned the power of parental words. Parents, we have the power of giving life or taking life by the words we speak to our children. And when words leave our mouths, it's not just noise. Words are a part of us, and at the same time, they seem to have a life apart from us. Words are living and active. Words affect relationships. Words like, I love you. Words in the legal realm, guilty or not guilty, those words can affect futures. John tells us that the Word made all, verse 3, all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. John says that our three-in-one God created the human race as His image bearers. We've been made as mirrors to reflect the light and love and glory of God Mirrors cannot generate light. Mirrors merely reflect light. And we've been made to reflect and magnify the light and love and joy and goodness of God. You were made to enjoy the loving arms and eternal laughter of our three-in-one God. And you were made to magnify that joy in the world that He created. He created you to live in His circle of love and he created you to mirror and reflect that love. But the moment I mention what we're meant to be, it becomes clear what we're not. Because our mirrors are cracked, aren't they? Broken. And our love has turned inward, curved in on itself. And instead of light, there's darkness. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness what does John mean by darkness? John means evil, and John means ignorance. And think about what was going on in the time surrounding Christ's birth. The Roman Empire was held together by a ruthless military peace, a peace that came through violence, injustice, the abuse of power. Families were ripped apart. There was bottomless grief. At the very end of the first century, Roman historian Tacitus wrote that Rome created a desolation and called it peace. The prophet Isaiah spoke of that darkness in Isaiah 8, 21 and 22. And the hopelessness of those who are trapped.
kept in darkness. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. They're trapped. There's no way out. People in darkness can only look to the darkness, and they're blind to any way out. They're blind to, to the ability to fix the world on their own. It doesn't matter if they have their own experts or their own scholars or their own solutions. Years ago, an ad in the New York Times ran that said, said the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. And those are sentimental words, but basically the ad was saying that we have the light within us, and so we're the ones who can dispel the darkness of the world, and we can overcome poverty and injustice and violence and evil, and if we just can work together, we can create a world of unity and peace. Can we? Have we? Why, why would we think that? Why, why do we think that darkness plus effort or darkness plus innovation or darkness plus money or darkness plus, you fill in the, in the blank, will equal light? That the meaning of Christmas is not cheer up. If we can all just pull together, we can make this world a better place. That's not gospel news. The message of Christmas is this. It's dark. The lights are out. We need help, and help has arrived. Verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Can't you see this third truth coming here on the horizon? Jesus, who existed before his birth, Jesus who created all that exists, is the Jesus who has defeated the darkness of this world. The solution to the shattered mirrors of our dark world is not from below, but from above. God has to take the initiative, and God has. God has intervened to rescue us from a hopeless darkness. The Word became flesh. And it's not just a message that offers some hope. It is the message that is the only hope. The Word became flesh is not an idea, but a person. The Word became flesh is not about God communicating concepts, but God communicating Himself. The Word became flesh tells us that God is nearby. God is accessible. He's not hidden away for only for mystics and scholars, but He's seen and touched and heard. The Word became flesh tells us that the man Jesus was no mere mortal. He was not an inspired carpenter. Jesus was God Himself taking on the clothing of human flesh, embracing it, walking in it, speaking through it, and expressing the reality of God to the world in a manner never done before. And John says this about no one else. No one else. Who else does John say was in the beginning or was God or with God? No one. Who else does John say descended from heaven and after death would ascend to heaven? No one. And John knows this because John was an eyewitness of the glory of the Word made flesh. 
John lived with Jesus. Uh, in John's gospel, you'll see the phrase that is repeated, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John self-identifying. John was Jesus' closest friend. He knew him. He watched Jesus. He heard Jesus teach. He saw Jesus perform signs and wonders. He was with Jesus during meals and conversations and eating and sleeping and napping and traveling. And John was at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. And John saw the empty tomb. And John saw the resurrected Christ. John, this devout, pious, monotheistic Jew came to the conclusion that this Jesus was in fact God in the flesh and that the way to know God is to know Jesus. If you want to know all that God is, John says in his introductory remarks, look at all that Jesus is. The Jesus who existed long before Bethlehem the Jesus who is the uncreated creator of all. And Jesus who is the only hope for all that's broken in this dark world. Do you notice in John 1, 1 through 18, there are no commands to obey. No commands to obey. Rather, there's news for you to believe. You see, the gospel is not good advice. The gospel's good news about the one who is the fullest, most accurate, most complete, most exact representation of who God is and what God is like. In him is life. Life. Now let me tell you what's going to happen. In a few minutes, when our service concludes, you're going to go out through those glass doors. And you are going to enter the universe of the urgent. Right? The universe of the urgent. You're going to run into people and places, every one of which wants you to think that their issue, their problem, their need, their conundrum is the overarching issue of the day. And if we're not careful, we're going to become unwitting victims to the urgency of here and now living. And when people live in the here and now, they operate under the assumption that their urgent matter is the most important matter. When you live in the here and now, your, your thoughts can seem more important than they actually are. When you live in the here and now, your feelings can, you know, feel more reliable than they really are. And when you live in the here and now, your needs can seem more essential than they really are. You know, on the Titanic, there were stories of aristocrats who wanted their personal assistance to get some 
hot tea going and get the bed turned down, get this done before I get back because we've got this little interruption that we've got to go on the deck for, for a little while, but I'll be back. Well, no, you won't. You just don't know it yet. You just don't realize there's a bigger story in play besides the story of your tea needing to be made. You see, we want our story to be bigger than it really is. And what John's trying to tell us is the overwhelming truth that there's a bigger, more beautiful picture. There's a bigger story. There's a bigger reality than our here and now. There's another kingdom, another realm, another dimension that will one day swallow all that we see and hear. God is at work bringing it all into play. And he has done this through the sending of his beloved son, the word made flesh. In fact, it's already in play. It's already in play through Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the sending of his Holy Spirit upon his people. I mean, God's new world is already in play. Did Paul not say he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it? The one true light has invaded the darkness, and the darkness has not nor ever will overcome it. So John 1 is the prologue, not just of Christ's life here, but I would submit that John's prologue is, is the prologue to your life and my life. And so this person comes in front of this curtain and says, now then, you all are about to leave this room, but before you leave this room and experience the story of your life, let me show you behind the curtain. And let me share with you some insider information I want you to know about. What you need to know is that there's more to this world than what you can see. There's another world, another story, another realm that is the most beautiful and magnificent story ever brought to you by a loving, caring God who wants you in his arms of love and wants to overwhelm you with his joyful laughter. Laughter brought about by the sorrow of the Son. Joy brought about by cries of agony from the cross. Arms of love embracing you into his bosom because arms were stretched out on a Roman tree. Darkness overcome by light. Death overrun by life for us. This is for us if we believe. Do we? Amen.